this is Chris Campbell, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. Today, we welcome Dan Rowe, CEO of Francemark, to the show, and we'll be talking about the restaurant of the future. But first, whether you are a first-time listener or becoming something of a regular, we ask that you share this episode on your social media platforms. It really helps us expand our reach, and we appreciate it when you do so. And I should note, we're also available on Spotify and Apple iTunes now. So if those are your platforms of choice, we ask you to subscribe there, and you can listen to the episodes every week. So with all of that said, I'll introduce Dan. I'll start off by asking how he's doing today. So how are you, Dan? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're really excited to have you here. But for those who may not be familiar, would you be able to give us a little background about yourself and Fransmart? Yeah, Dan Rowe. I started Fransmart about 20 years ago. We've sold about 5,000 franchises around the world and started franchising for companies like Five Guys Burgers, Qdoba, the Halal Guys, uh, our niche is really trying to get the next big thing as early as we possibly can. And wherever we can, we try to invest in the brands as well. We have a number of funds, including Kitchen Fund, uh, but where we like to, we like to um, think that we have a pretty good idea of what kind of brands could wind up going from a couple to a couple of hundred. And that's, that's our dance. So I think having that overarching view is going to be very useful for the discussion today. But before we can talk about the restaurant of the future, I think we need to take a look at the restaurant landscape in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I was hoping you could give us a brief overview of where you see the restaurant industry today. Yeah, I mean, you know, COVID sucks. As sad as COVID is, and it's sad, I mean, it's really sad. If you if you just look forward, if you're standing here today, the 29th of January, looking forward, you see an amazing amount of opportunity. And, um, you know, you, you think about it, there's 8 billion people on the planet, 300 something million in America. Everybody wakes up hungry every single day and they're going to eat. They're going to eat something. And half the restaurants are gone or are severely limping. And so there's, there's just never been a better opportunity in my mind as I've been in this business for a long time. This is the best time I've ever seen this market. Um, there's a huge supply and demand shift for amazing locations. Like there's just, you know, uh, tons of really good locations out there. Landlords willing to make really good deals. There's amazing conversions out there that allow you to open for half the price, basically juicing or doubling your ROI. You got a supply and demand imbalance with people. I mean, a year ago, you had the complaint was you can't find good people. And now, um, you know, with unemployment where it is, it's just never been easier to find and keep really good, talented people. And then, and then for customers, you know, you got you got like I said, you got all these people waking up eating that want to eat somewhere, and um, and half the comp competition's gone. And so it's no wonder you see fast casual and fast food with same store sales increases. And we'll talk about some of the reasons why, but it's, I mean, you don't have to work that hard to make a lot of money right now. Our brands are fast fat. We have fast casual brands. We even have one brand new full service brand that opened up a month and a half ago and it's slammed. It's busy because it's new and it's fun and it's interesting and it's busy. So right now is a good time. So one of the things I'd like to point out there too, is you said, you know, half of the competition is gone, but the other 50% that stayed, what did they do to pivot during the COVID-19 pandemic to either better serve their customers or even just to limp along, as you said, you know, manage to survive through this really challenging time? Well, you know, it's funny because I know a lot of celebrity chefs and really famous celebrity chefs and, you know, uh, a lot of kind of hoity-toity restaurant folks. Those guys used to think off-premise sales were beneath them. Like if you ever wanted a year or two ago 
food from a big name chef restaurant to go to take home or to have a delivery, it was a it was not convenient. They they weren't set up for it. They didn't. Their restaurants weren't engineered for it. Their people weren't really engineered. It was complicated and complex for you to get in there. Those guys didn't pivot during COVID, blamed why they needed bailouts and all that other stuff, while a bunch of the other chain restaurants, including full service, like look at what Outback did. They pivoted with a whole off-premise concept. Brinker did the same thing. But, you know, the, the thing that everybody focused on was off-premise. You, you still have to feed people where they want to eat, when they want to eat, and how they want to eat. And during COVID, when people were freaked out, especially the first couple months, like I said, they're still eating. That's why you saw the the stories early on where grocery store sales were going crazy because that was where people felt safe to um, to eat. They were going to a grocery store, getting food, cooking it for themselves and their families, and they felt safe. And so, you know, the restaurants that that bounced back quickest were the fast food guys. And you know, because as soon as you got tired of making your own food, then you went through the drive through. And then, you know, and and to to keep going further, a lot of fast casual guys, including Panera, that don't have drive throughs, created this drive up. So we have Halal Guys as one of our brands, and they don't have drive-throughs. But as a way to compete with drive-throughs, they created these drive-up lanes, where it's not it's not the same as drive-through, but sort of uh, it's better than coming in the restaurant traditionally. You, customers order their food, they drive up, they text you when they're in the parking lot, and you bring the food out to them. And it's you know, and our our sales at Halal Guys were jamming during those months. Because they came up with that. In fact, the local press even wrote about these guys. Like they did the Davy and Goliath kind of uh, stories about our franchisees tackling the the big uh, drive-through chains with that kind of creativity and that extra marketing boost. I mean, our restaurants, that particular market, their sales were up fifty percent year over year during COVID. So you know, I think the big thing that that people pivoted towards is they 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 just acknowledge that people want to feel safe, they want to feel smart. And you have to feed people when and where and how they wanted. And the ones that did that did well. The ones that didn't are the ones that are gone. So it's funny. A thought I had to myself pretty often in 2020 was, you know, what's old again is new again. And that was specifically in reference to drive-throughs. What do you expect to see as far as fast casual and fast food operators in 2021 and beyond regarding drive-throughs? Do you think that this is a momentary impetus to move to these new models or even, you know, old models, really, when you think about it? Or do you think that this is more of a temporary uh, infrastructure upgrade that is mostly designed to help them through COVID-19? No, it's it's the future. So it's, you know, you're not going to get like in a Chipotle. Chipotle now has drive-throughs. Sweetgreen, we're an investor in Sweetgreen. Sweetgreen has drive and used to be that those were inline, high volume inline locations, and it was not convenient to make that food through a drive-through, right? Because everything's done from scratch and to order and that kind of stuff. They figured it out, and people love it. And so I think what you're going to see, like for concepts like Sweet Green, Halal Guys opened up a drive-through, right? Halal Guys opened up a drive-through. So it doesn't mean Halal Guys is only going to be drive-through. It just means that now instead of only growing in strip centers or in pads. They can also do drive-through. They can also do drive-up. I mean, drive-up is like a whole extra revenue center for restaurants. And if you look at it like that, you're like, gosh, I can get another 20% sales. And all I have to do is focus on these things. That incremental 20% sales is super profitable. So I think the future, I think you're going to see this whole off-premise, whether it's drive-through, drive-up, app-driven carry-out, or through all of these delivery platforms, whether it's your own or third party, that's the future. 
And you, you have to engineer your restaurants so that you guys thrive in that environment. So I know that these things help with social distancing, but what kind of benefit do you expect to see then going forward? Do you think consumer sentiment is just going to be so accustomed to these new delivery slash pickup slash drive through models that they just want to maintain that convenience? Or do you expect that people are going to want to go back into to restaurants as soon as they're able to? Or do you expect it's going to be some kind of mesh between those two? Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's both. A lot of people went into restaurants because they didn't have the off-premise option. Now they have the off-premise option. Restaurants nowadays, anyone building a restaurant that's the same size or bigger is crazy. You should be building restaurants that are smaller, do more volume and less square feet, more volume with fewer employees or fewer employee hours. And um, you should focus on off-premise and everybody up and down the, I don't, from the fastest of fast food to the fullest of full service, everybody should have an off-premise component. And it's the customers, the whole curve of people starting to adapt that just was, you know, sped up because of COVID. But it's like, if you're not doing that, you're leaving money on the table. You still have to pay rent, still have to pay lights, still have to pay staff. Look how many hours you have where you have a staff that aren't fully utilized. It's like you got to layer revenue centers in there. One of those revenue centers is off premise. So that does go into another question I wanted to ask you about regarding restaurant size. So at the Food Institute, we have been tracking. We've seen a lot of quick service and fast food operators are kind of switching to these smaller uh, restaurant footprints. So I guess I was wondering, you know, what types of restaurants do you expect to leverage this trend? Specifically wondering, you know, how full service restaurants might take a look at this trend and see if they can find a way to close themselves down a little bit more, make themselves a little bit leaner and, you know, more effective. Or do you think that they'll maintain, you know, more traditional uh, full service restaurant sizes just because, you know, it's been the industry standard and seems to have worked, you know, before COVID? Um, I, I wouldn't. So so taking QSR aside, because more than half of all sales at QSR is is off-premise already. Um, I think it's like two-thirds are, are, are off-premise, uh, drive-through and carry-out. Fast casual, you usually only had one-third was off-premise. Now you're going to see fast casual basically having two-thirds off-premise. You're going to have a third dine-in, third carry-out, and a third delivery. And if that's the case, there's no reason to build the same restaurant the same size. Full-service restaurants like casual dining guys that they, they used to have a single-digit off-premise are now going to have a 20, 30% off premise. And so, you know, between um, app driven carry out and to go like Taffer's Tavern, we opened up a, a restaurant, brand new full service tavern, 5,000 foot tavern in Atlanta and, and during COVID. And it's just slammed busy. One of the things that he's doing is he's using these auto mats for carry out because in the olden days, you'd walk into a, let's just say Chili's, you'd go into a Chili's, you'd order your to go either at the bar. Who doesn't really want to deal with you because he's not getting a tip or the the hostess who's not really set up for that and it's cumbersome and you're sitting around wondering you know waiting for your food and someone's bringing it up to you the whole thing was not engineered right taffer put an automat in there that's that's on the side of the building but it's adjacent to the kitchen so once your food's made in the kitchen your expo guy just puts it in your auto uh, automat bay customer comes up shows their phone gets their food and then they go and that's that's I think stuff like that is the future of the restaurant business is touchless, you know, easy. Everything's now done on iPhones. But that goes to that thing where people have to feel smart and in charge and safe and and it's got to be convenient. And so if you're going to get carry out from a restaurant, what's the easiest way to do it? And, so, you know, so these these full service companies are going to have to adapt like that. 
and they they started to a while ago. Like you go to a PF Chang's and they had like a carry out door, you know, door for carry out because they understand that. So it's just you have to continue to you have to just keep going down that road, make it easier. But with with you're going to have double or triple the amount of off premise and full service restaurants. And so there's just no reason to build the restaurants the same size unless you're convinced that you're going to still fill the house. But the old adage, don't build your church for Easter Sunday is true. Like too many people build restaurants for the busiest possible day part or the busiest possible peak hour. But you still have to pay rent and cap capex and debt service and you still have to, you know, pay utilities on all the, on all that space, the other 23 hours a day. And it's just, it's foolish. So you should be building restaurants that are smaller and really engineered so that, you know, you're making full use of the whole space. So one of the things I've been thinking about this year is people's dining habits have really shifted into the house, obviously, because of COVID-19. We've seen a proliferation of third-party delivery, but we also have a lot of examples of in-house delivery doing well. Uh, People that do in-house, you know, that come to mind for me would say Domino's or Panera, but you also have a lot of virtual brands and even just traditional restaurant brands turning to third-party operators in the space. So what would your thoughts be for a a brand that's, you know, just starting out right now? Is it more important to have your own internal delivery systems or would you want to turn to a third-party, you know, market that would be able to, uh, you know, fulfill these orders for you? What do you think is the better option? Well, well, first of all, being in the meal replacement business is a smart business. And so, you know, if you if you can actually help somebody build uh, an option with your restaurant so that they can take carry out home for dinner, like most people don't think about that a year ago, like you weren't thinking about Chili's or Fridays or Outback or anything like that for dinner or even, you know, a lot of other restaurants. But the brands need to become because people are going to eat dinner anyways. And so if you can figure out how to be the meal replacement option, that's a whole other revenue center. My feeling is that you leverage all of the um, options. I don't really believe I, I do believe I come from the camp that believes that even though these third party delivery fees are high, I feel like it's incremental. I do believe it's incremental. And I think you should be charging customers. First of all, I'm, I'm also the guy who thinks that everybody should be raising their menu prices every year. Like, five, seven percent a year. Um, if you're not, you're losing money. But in the case of all this delivery stuff, it's like you have to raise your menu price. If you're not allowed to, to charge delivery fees, which by the way, now you can, but in the beginning, you couldn't really do that. But if you, if for some reason you're limited on what you can charge for delivery fee, raise your menu price because you're still in the business of being profitable. So you want to put really good solutions to get your food Make it worth your while to do it right. Make it worth your while to do a good job doing home meal replacement, and you're going to thrive in that space. People will pay a little bit extra for that. I would agree. A lot of the things we've seen here this year and last year at the Food Institute indicates that consumers are willing to pay that premium, provided that you know it's on time, the food comes in a presentable manner, you know it's still hot and it's still appetizing. So I would agree on a lot of those you know points right there. Um, and one of the things that can really leverage that delivery aspect would be ghost kitchens. And in 2020, we really saw that this ghost kitchen concept started to explode. We kind of spoke about it a little bit earlier with those off-premise brands, uh, Brinker having It's Just Wings and then Outback having their own. So I was wondering if you could just give us an idea of what you think is going to happen with the ghost kitchen uh, market. Do you think it's still growing? Has it seen its cap? You know, what kind of future does it have after the pandemic? I think I think I think ghost kitchens is going to have an enormous fallout, a huge uh, a huge fallout and a ton of casualties. But I think it's a good idea, and I think some people are going to make a killing. 
like a lot of things, that business started from somebody that took a dollar and made a hundred dollar bill out of that, followed by, you know, a bunch of these private equity backed people that are now spending a hundred dollars to make a dollar. And so a lot of the people that I meet in the ghost kitchen world, they're not really even in the restaurant business. They don't know how to feed people. They don't understand that at the end of the day, we're feeding people and the food's got to taste good and all that other stuff. And they're not really even in the delivery business. They fancy themselves as financial engineers. And I think those are the ones that are going to have the toughest time. I think you're going to see, you're going to see restaurants doing the whole reason that there was room for ghost kitchens is because restaurants weren't pivoting that way. Now you're seeing a lot of restaurants doing that and doing that themselves that's going to wipe out half of the landscape. And the other half is going to be um, wiped out as soon as all the dumb money realizes that 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 they're in a losing situation. I, I see it. I had a guy call me yesterday, a private equity backed ghost kitchen. And, you know, he guys raised $22 million and he's got his run rate of revenue is less than a million dollars. And he's still asking me really basic questions that have to do with whether or not he's positioned right in the business. He's raised all that money and he still doesn't know if he's if he's even aimed right. And so I think, you know, the private equity at some point is going to drive up. But, you know, the private equity guys are the ones that, you know, I think though those ones are the ones that I think are going to take it uh, the hardest. But yeah, but I think uh, the whole ghost kitchen phenomenon, when I first heard it, it's like the, their whole premise is we do stuff that restaurants don't do or that they that that they can't do. Well, restaurants can do that now. And you'd see like Olo, like Olo is an amazing um, app where people can can finally do proper online ordering and they're getting into delivery too. I mean, they're, you know, so there's, there's solutions are coming where you can do really good off premise and the price of that is going to come down for the operator. But even if it's not, you should still be raising your price so that it's profitable for you to do it, to do a good job. So Dan, I know your company represents a lot of the fastest growing restaurant brands in the U.S. market. And I know you brought up Halal Guys. So we also have Curry Up Now and and the rest of the portfolio there. So I was wondering what restaurant concepts do you expect will flourish in 2021? And what really explains the growth prospects for those specific concepts? Well, I think, you know, the, there's opportunities for new brands, right? So like you get these, uh, you know, ethnic foods or things that haven't been done yet. Like that's why Halal Guys or Curry Up Now is so popular. It's like people are like, yeah, it makes sense. I There's a billion and a half Muslims and, you know, people like hummus and, you know, so it makes sense. And so there's no competitors. And so that's why those places do well. But you're also, there's always room for someone that's got a better version of what's out there. That's really what Chipotle was. They didn't invent burritos, you know, that they just did it in a way that people responded to better. Five guys didn't invent burgers. They just came up with a micro niche that people liked. And so I think that there are going to be concepts that just sort of come up with something that's just better that, than, than what's out there right now. And I think that's going to happen fast food, fast casual, casual dining, taverns everything. So people are always up for looking at the next, you know, at the next option, but it, it's going to come down to guest experience is that at the end of the day, it's not what you say your brand is or what your concept is, is what your customers say and whether or not they keep voting with their wallet to come back. You know, I look at concepts that, you know, like, like, like a, like a curry up now or a halal guys, it's like, there's no competitors. There's nobody doing that. So from a landlord's perspective all across the country, you go to the best real estate in the country and they've already got a burrito guy or a burger guy or a coffee guy, but they don't have a Middle Eastern or an Indian or at least a branded one. Like they don't have a branded name for that. So, you know, it's good from that point of view. Franchisees are always looking. We're in the franchise business. So franchisees are always looking for good non-competing expansion vehicles. So, you know, there's an audience in that way. The market environment right now with the ability to go do conversions and 
half your startup costs, which doubles your ROI, which gets people, that's the only way you're going to get people investing in sketchy markets like this is if the upside's just really great. And it is. So I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that there's one thing. I think that, you know, you're going to see, you're going to see full service concepts that, that reinvent themselves and they're going to go on a run. I think diners, diners is perfect for, you know, someone to go do something new and, um, and, 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 and hip in the diner space, the, you know, tappers, what he's doing with the tavern tavern business. I mean, he's doing more volume. He's doing more like two times the sales of an Outback and, and, uh, in, in a space that's about the same size. It's like people are done without back in Fridays. They want some, they want kind of the newest thing in that space. Now I'm going to ask you to put on your fortune teller cap. So what's coming down the pipeline in the next five years that really gets you excited about the restaurant of the future? If you had to pick one prospect or one kind of maybe technological advancement, something that's coming down the pipeline that you think is really going to shake up the industry and kind of reform it in the years to come. Well, I, I, I don't know if there's one thing, but there's a lot of things. It's like half the industry is going to be gone, like half your competitors is gone. And so, I mean, the best thing that you have is you have a supply and demand shift in your favor, like I said, for, for sites and people and customers. And then you've got customers that actually want to use technology like it used to be. You had to train your or you had to bribe your customers to start using apps and technology. And it's like they're already doing it. They're doing it with or without you. And the other good news is out of the half the competitors that are still standing, only half of those guys are even going to embrace technology. So if you really look at this as a good time to grow and you embrace technology in all ways, I, know, I think it's going to be easy. I don't think that you have to be lucky. I think it's going to be easy to go get meaningful, meaningful market share in this market. So I think that about wraps it up for us today on the Food Institute podcast. Once again, I'd like to thank Dan for his time today. Uh, Dan, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your organization? Yeah, anytime. Fransmart.com, F-R-A-N-S-M-A-R-T.com. We're here. Look forward to look forward to talking to anybody. So we'll definitely share the link to that in the description of this video. That way people can click right through. And I'd just like to say, once again, thank you, Dan, for your time today. And remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. Thank you.